day, everyone. This is Marge Twisdale, producer and host of Prose, Poetry, and Purpose, welcoming you back for another show. And now let me welcome guest author, local-born Washingtonian Rob Kearney. Welcome to the show. Good to be here. Thanks. Thank you for calling in from Utah, I believe. Salt Lake, yep. yes? Yep, Salt Lake. I want to share real quickly uh, how we met, which was at the AWP convention in Seattle. And you were, I believe, presenting your work for Terrain.org. Yeah, that's right. Do you want to tell our listeners just a little bit about Terrain.org and sort of maybe why they were interested in your work? Yeah, okay. First, about Terrain. Uh, this was created by a, a man named Simmons Button. And he lives down in Arizona, but it's online. Mm-hmm. And he has a variety of uh, of people, editors, helping him with different things. Anyway, I got to meet them. The reason that they had asked me up to read at their event during the AWP conference was because in 2013, I had been selected as the winner of their poetry competition. Mm-hmm. Um, we had the off-site event down in Pioneer Square. Yeah, what and- was that cute building? Because that's where I actually first met you was literally they had some... It's a museum, right? Yeah, a it was museum. about the it was about the Yukon uh, right. Trail, I believe, or people like the whole Seattle, San Francisco diaspora going up to look for gold. Right, because okay, so Terrain.org is, and I, I really had a lot of fun chatting with them as well. They are sort of about built and natural environments, so it's sort of like I think the way they put it was they wanted to bring literature to architects and they wanted to bring architectural concepts to writers and allow those two groups to really sort of connect. Yes, and photography and they have uh, you know, regular it's a rolling thing rather than quarterly, right? It's just new content comes up all the time. Yes. Poems, stories, memoirs, travelogues, uh reviews of books that would be of interest to people interested in built and natural environments. Right. Um, no, it's really fantastic. Then, because they're not putting out print issues, right? They can make this as splashy and uh, full of art and photography as they want without it being cost prohibitive. Right. Yeah, yeah. it's very cool. I like it very much. Well, and sometimes you know it will lead me to other journals as well. There's one called Poecology. There's one called Ecotone. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, there are a lot of people who are interested in this. So what I really like about Terrain.org. Not just a variety, but that it'll lead you to, I don't know, to things that you're not going to find in most literary journals. They have a focus, for instance, on something they call unsprawl, right? And uh, I think that that's absolutely one of my interests, too. I mean, I'm in the West, right? I grew up. I lived in the West. The only time I didn't live in the West, I lived in South Louisiana. And it it happened there, too. Um, They had traded pecan groves and and sugarcane for a super Lowe's next to a regular Lowe's, next to a super Target, next to all this concrete mm-hmm. parking lots, trying to make a retail and a tax base for itself that way uh, after they'd been sort of ruined by Houston boom-bust oil people. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, what I don't like is that everything is gone. Yeah. Everything, you know, and uh, because of national chain franchises, there's no real difference anymore around the country it seems like the team you know people lose whatever distinct quality they used to have oh gosh that's wow talk about a pandora's box there i mean because on on two levels on on one hand you've got i i do understand that there's the concept within the world of business that you want people to um, brand loyalty and when they walk into a starbucks it does not matter what country you are in it is supposed to feel the same, smell the same, look the same, and people get the sense of, oh, I'm home or, you know, I'm in my safe place. And so they're purposely doing this. It's not even, definitely not an accident, intentional beyond belief. Right. And then I look at the world and I've traveled a little bit. I've been to Costa Rica, Hawaii, um, Canada, around the States a bit, haven't traveled a lot. But one of the number one things I'm dreading is the idea of going to Asia or Europe or somewhere and feeling like I haven't gone anywhere. I want, I, I really love that just 300 years ago, all of these different places had different languages, different clothing, different hairstyles, different everything. There was variety. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even in the French Quarter of Louisiana, you're going to find TJR Fridays, right? I mean, oh, that's yeah, not right. where um, that's not where you should eat when you're in a place that's 
absolutely distinct. And mm-hmm. New Orleans, there is no other place like the French Quarter that I have seen in the U.S. And there may be places like that in Charleston, I don't know. But when you're in, for instance, the French Quarter of New, New Orleans, you've you got to eat at the at the Acme and Oyster Bar. You can't eat <laughs> at PJI Fridays. Right. It just doesn't, it's, you know, yeah. it would seem wrong. Well, now you were, well, I don't know where you were born exactly, but you roughly grew up in Puyallup? No, I, yeah, I was born in Puyallup and okay. uh, grew up in Puyallup-ish. Most of my school was actually up on South Hill, which is technically not even the town, but Pierce County, mm-hmm. so in the woods. But, you know, for people who live there uh, or are hearing you around Vashaw, Puyallup, when I was there, is still rural, right? And Pierce County, even more rural. When I'm back, I see, no, it's not the same place. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, the, now there's a sign on what used to be there, right? You know, like the Meadows Condominiums, right. Willow Glen Shopping Parking Lot. The Meadows Lot are Plaza. long gone. Right. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, but Utah has adopted that during the 18 years I've lived here, too. Spokane yeah. in the four years I lived there. Uh, Lafayette had done it to itself down in Louisiana before I got there. So, that I mean, I'm not the curse, right? I don't drag no. this sprawl with me everywhere I go. But Let's hope it happens. Not. It happens. Yeah, I'll be honest. There's places in my life. I traveled a ton. I went to 17 different schools between kindergarten and graduating high school. That's a few. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, for whatever reason, lots and lots of moving. And but at certain places like um, Morro Bay and Santa Barbara, um, UCSB, and different places that, I, that we'd go back and forth a few times. So I have these memories. I don't even want to go back. I remember the big, incredibly beautiful open areas with these little winding roads that we would ride for like, you know, eight miles to get to a remote beach. That, and I just don't want to go see whatever they've put there. So somebody's going back is the worst thing. It destroys your childhood memories. Well, actually, yeah, that's how I feel about it too. But in writing, you can sort of recollect and then you would think, hopefully – save them, um, mm-hmm. I, you know, or pick a place that's, that you want to love that's really remote and nobody's going to do that to. Right, like your um, friend who lives in remote, remote, remote Oregon. Yeah, well, I know, or Washtuckna. Have you ever been over there? No. No, <laughs> see, it's on the way to Pullman, right? Nobody, it's the thing you're driving through and you see, right. uh, you know, a grain silo and you don't really know that it's, a, but it is a town, right? right. There are people who have lives there. And those lives probably go on without that kind of interruption. And, I mean, honestly, they might think a Pizza Hut's good news. You know, that's fine. That's fine. I just think that uh, living in Utah, commuting to work, because I drive south about 40 miles from from Salt Lake City to my school, Utah Valley University. Mm -hmm. And people here now, I mean, they they notice. My students know it didn't used to look like this. It is all infill. I think there's something dangerous about uh, the suburbs. I mean, not just that it crowds you and it adds more pollution, and we're in a stretched, thin water kind of area anyway. There's a high desert. But metaphysically, I mean, if you turn into somebody who lives in the metaphysical suburbs and all your Western, all your wild is gone, I think that's problematic. And then you wonder, well, why am I out here? You know, it's six hours to Boise, six hours to Vegas, nine hours to Denver, 14 to San Francisco. What am I doing marooned out here with all this vast nothing Mm -hmm. around me? Well, it's because you're in the West, man. And that used to be, I think, something... Significant, and now I think people—I um, don't know—they just opt out and watch television, maybe. Well, yeah. The, mm-hmm. So here's what I'm imagining: I've got this great book in front of me. So, "Story Problems" is the title. Uh-huh. Poems by Rob Carney. Um, I love the picture. A river runs through it with the. This is an amazing picture on the front. It says, um, "Some salmon surge through floodwaters as, across Skokomish Valley Road." Northwest of Shelton, Washington, on Thursday, two days of heavy rain forced a nearby creek over its banks, sending thousands of migrating salmon off course and into harm's way. And literally, there's three or four of them, and they are swimming across the road with this big truck barreling toward them. You can see their fins and everything. Incredible photo. I love this. How did you come up with the front cover of this book? Well, the idea is to be uh, like the newspaper. The poet Ezra Pound. Uh, 
once said, uh, poetry is news that stays news. And uh, a contemporary with him, William Carlos Williams, had said in his poem, Asphodel, That Greeny Flower, mm-hmm. it is difficult to get the news from poems, but men, and he meant people, die mm-hmm. miserably every day for lack of what is found there. Hear me out. For I, too, am concerned, and everyone who wants to die at peace in his bed besides. And so I got the idea, I want to make the alternative news, the news that Williams, the news that Pound is talking about. So Mm -hmm. I wanted the whole thing to be very newspaper-ish, and so it's black and white, grayscale, gray-shaded collage with all these kind of bits of, of news put together. Now, a friend of mine, she's a graphic artist. She is also the editor, or one of the editors of Sugar House Review, mm-hmm. um, she designed the collage for me. And there was this one scrap that I wanted to have in it, just because I love the idea of, you know, in Washington, if it rains enough, the salmon will just, who cares? To, this, to us is a highway, and that is an emergency truck, but the salmon are just like, no, it's a river. Right. <laughs> so, I mean, we could feel as permanent and important as we want, but the truth is enough rain in Washington and the salmon just go right up the highway. Yeah. So I like that. And, I, I mean, I thought it was. In some ways, the cows go down the highway. Yeah. I thought on... it was maybe emblematic of what I'm trying to do because I have the, the book set up in sections, each section sort of tied to sections in the newspaper. Okay. Um, well, then we're going to have to dive. That's one of the things I wanted to touch in on. So let me read a few of these. So section one. News and haikus. Yeah. And real quick, back to what you were saying a little bit about, you know, Lowe's this and Walmart that. The next time you come up to visit your parents, even though we've already done this interview, come out to Vashon um, for a visit. Because one of the selling points, I hate that word, but it's more like one of the reasons that I really knew I was going to love living here is that before I moved here, and it was only four months from meeting Vashon to moving in, it was the the universe said you're supposed to be here, and everything went really well. But one of the things that people would say is, we don't have franchises on Vashon. And it wasn't like there's a rule, um, but in general, I mean, there's, there's one subway that went in about a few years ago, uh, but almost everything, almost everything is, even the subway, the people who run the businesses are the owners, and they live here on the island. And they are all like their own uniquely named little tiny stores. And it is um, such a huge joy that I get to raise children where they're not used to a Walmart or a Lowe's or anything like that, that this is so richly real in a way, and and very hands-on human and community. So definitely come over for a visit next time you're up. I mean, if you bring the kids, we can show them a great time on the island, chickens, horses, beaches, whatever, because it's a real nice treat to see that there are still places like this in the world. No, I, yeah, thank you very much. It's a good invitation. So, okay, so we have news and haikus, which matches with what you were saying quite obviously, and then there's recommended daily allowance, and then want ads and personals. Just once, I'd like to sneak up, sneak up on the wind. Op-eds and parables. Okay, see, now that you've said it, I can see it. But before, I was like, I wasn't quite sure what you were trying to do. But yeah, movie review, lost and found. This is so great. Yeah. So you... Horoscopes, too. Horoscopes at where, the end. Where is that? Oh. It's the final thing. Oh, so yes. Some of them are just the, the long poems in between, and they have their own... Uh, Section title is just the the title of the poem. Right, but, like Fables of Phobos? Well, Fables of Phobos is older, and I've been working at that for a long time. But that was because when I lived in Spokane, so, I mean, that long ago, and uh, I, I mean, my turntable still worked that long ago. <laughs> I would check out library albums, right? I'd bring home things. Vinyl? From, yes. The library rented out and, vinyl. Yeah, no, definitely. And, wow. Uh, I'm, well, I was born in 68. You're so. dating yourself. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't have a cell phone. I wish I had a turntable. I am mm. old. Um, mm. But I would bring home the records, and I was completely, completely, it was only jazz, and mostly with, you know, Sarah Vaughan or, or Billie Holiday, except that it was almost exclusively instrumental, and uh, particularly post-World War II, bebop, mm-hmm. etc. Charles Mingus. Loved him, and he had all these really cool titles for 
his albums and the, and the songs on them, but of course they're instrumental. And so when you're seeing titles like Don't Be Afraid, The Clown's Afraid Too, or Picanthropus Erectus, or uh, orange was the color of her dress, then blue silk, and there's no text to go along with it. I mean, it is interesting. But then it I is. saw this one, Fables of Fabus, and I thought, God, why do I know that name? And so, and the other thing that's great about albums is they they would have the liner notes, right? And they would be written by you know jazz scholars, historians, people who knew Nat Hentoff and uh, people like that, uh, Stanley Crouch, mm-hmm. I think. Um, Anyway, I was like, oh, yeah. And I was kind of glad that I didn't remember that in 1957, the one who started the whole problem in the South with school integration was that guy, Governor Favis of Arkansas. So well, three, well, years, okay. so I'm three look- years after the, the Brown versus Topeka Board of Education right. decision, they still hadn't integrated. And Eisenhower, mm-hmm. another you know, a Republican president, had to send troops to escort these students into Central High and Little Rock, right? Right. So I wanted the idea a long time ago, and I've been working, you know, incrementally towards the form it finally is, is to balance the news, the actual, these were the accounts, versus fables, right, in which Fabus has to figuratively walk in the shoes of Elizabeth Eckford, right, Mm -hmm. where one of the iconic images that goes throughout is the penny because that's got Abraham Lincoln's face, and he's the one that ended slavery. Another Republican. So it's, you know. Right. Um, okay, it, so hold, so here, so there's three pages in a row here. Page 49, mm-hmm. which is the beginning of Fables and Fa- of Fabus, is where, so you quote, We conclude that in the field of public education, the doctrine of separate but equal has no place. Mm-hmm. Separate educational facilities are inherently unequal. The U.S. Supreme Court, Brown versus Topeka Board of Education, May 17th, 1954. Right. After that, it we jumped says, to Arkansas and right. other places in the South. But this, uh, but on page 50, it, it sounds like it is a bio of Orville Faubus. It is. Who you're saying was the person who was fighting the decision to yeah. integrate. Somebody from Time Magazine was trying to let the country know who is this governor. Bobbis of Arkansas is doing all this stuff. And this is a quote from Time Magazine on that date. Yep. And then next to that, you've got me creating a fable, you know. um, So I'm going to ask you to read that fable. But first, I'm going to clue our listeners into what Time, the person at Time was telling us about Governor Faubus. Yeah. Okay, so Governor. Eugene. So Governor Faubus was attempting to maintain basically segregation. Meanwhile, when we look at his own upbringing. It says, Arkansas, part Delta and part Mountain, part Magnolia and part Moonshine, where a horse is a critter and a heifer is a cow brute, is given to such place names as Loafer's Glory, Hogscald, Nellie's Apron, and perhaps most remote of them all, Greasy Creek, in the Ozark Forest, where Orville Faubus was born 47 years ago in a candle-lighted cabin. He trapped skunk and muskrat to help his family scratch out a living from their hill farm and trudged five miles a day to a one-room country school. Perhaps begging the question, and this is me saying this, of why someone with that humble of a background would stand against the improvement of educational opportunity for youth in his state. Well, you got to remember, and... 1950s, all the South was still segregated. It was still Jim Crow. It predates Martin Luther King. It predates civil rights and Selma and all the things that people are taking for granted now as, oh, we're post-racial. And in I don't some know ways, that that's true. This is in, yeah. you know, this is this was during the this was during the teen years of my own parents. I mean, there's a generation of people who grew up in this country seeing all this stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Not reading about it. It was real. Mm-hmm. Um. So what I tried to do was have somebody uh, like Aesop, who was also, you know, enslaved, come along afterwards, after the bit of real news, the fact, Mm -hmm. and tell maybe a different story. Because a lot of times people aren't moved by facts. I think that, you know, facts are useful, but they're not always what reach people, not in their head. Uh, You know, you have to get to the guts and heart of somebody first before there's an intellectual dent made, maybe. 
So that's what I'm doing as a companion seven times through. I'll have a quote from the, the actual history and then a fable that sits alongside. So this one's called Bobus Adds His Ante to the Pot. When you pick up a penny and hold it to your ear, what do you hear? I hear a voice above a graveyard telling the story of the Gettysburg Address. Lincoln wrote it on an envelope, as you know, but that's not the interesting part. What's interesting is what the envelope contained, a slave girl's baby teeth and a note addressed to the president. That girl grew up. She had a daughter of her own, whose grandson fought the Nazis in World War II. He had a daughter who got spit on going to school. One of the things they teach at that school is the Gettysburg Address. Yeah, wake up to history. All right, so here's the deal. I've spent my life not liking poetry. And the reason I've not liked it is because I'm a sort of a private person in some ways. People on the island are going to laugh about that. But I have felt always very uncomfortable reading a piece of poetry because I feel like I'm being intrusive and assumptive. I feel like it's very rude for me to assume that by looking at words on a piece of paper that I can accurately be understanding or interpreting what that person is trying to communicate when it comes to poetry in particular. Fiction, they go out of their way to try to make sure you know what they're intending. But poetry can be, I don't even know the proper words for it, obscure. Yeah, yeah. I actually, though, I, I would say I agree with you. I mean, I feel the same way, and I've especially been at places where I feel uncomfortable because somebody's writing something which is absolutely confessional. It happened to them. Uh, you know, this is the kind of person who will say, hey, I went through a horrible depression for two years after my awful divorce, but it gave me lots of stuff to write about. Mm-hmm. Here they are. And, I mean, I feel uncomfortable listening to that, too. Well, that's but, personal. And that is, so sometimes, yeah, you feel like you're in their bedroom, right? But, yeah. but also, I'm getting ten times more out of that poem because you've, um, in a way, placed it for me. And and that's what happened at AWP when it's the voice, it's the tone, the um, facial expression, the body language, which at the time at AWP I had. I guess I wish sometimes that we had a chance to get more information from poets than just what they put on the piece of paper. Well, yeah, okay, except that I wouldn't necessarily be comfortable having people knock on the door and look at me and ask me <laughs> questions, you know. I mean, um, what I, my goal, my absolute goal, and I, I'm completely with you, I do not like things that are obscure. I do not like things that are, uh, you know, and there are a lot of people who proudly do this. They mm-hmm. think as long as I'm not being understood, then I know I've done well because <laughs> everybody else is stupid and it confirms that, you know, I'm better. I want to be accessible. I tell stories, you know. Um, mm-hmm. You know that is. I, I make up fables, right? I take the old forms, origin stories, myths, fables, uh, and put new words into them because I think that those kinds of stories have been, in, you know, around as long as there have been people with language. What's well, different you, about yeah. them is that I'm trying to put new stories in those old forms because people like the forms, they respond to them. But I mean, let's be honest. None of us got up today and thought. Let's see, according to genealogy, I should plan my day this way. Or mm-hmm. uh, what is what is, what is it in Genesis that was said about light? Oh, yeah, and now I know what I'll do. We don't mm-hmm. listen to our old stories anymore, but we still are moved when we come across the form, mm-hmm. especially when it has new information in it. So, Well, and I mean, I, I like your style of poetry a lot. I mean, there are the people who really thrive, and this is fine, completely legit. I'm happy for them. They thrive on the poetry that spends, you know, I don't know, uh, an entire sonnet about a rose petal. And, you know, I mean, there, there's, there's that, and that's fine. But you definitely, yes, I mean, it's storytelling. It's a message. There's something meant to come through. I wouldn't have put together that Lincoln's face is on the side of the penny. So I, I, I'm thrilled now that I've You've added that piece in for me. I'm like, oh, right. You know, what do you hear? Do you hear Lincoln talking? You know. Um, but, like, let's go back. So there's there's two poems in particular because I really wanted us to be able to be more freeform. But there okay. were these two poems. And the first one, I think, is, oh, I just adore this one. And it is just fabulous. Love it. Um, are you up for reading another right now? Sure. So this is, um, if God were really omniscient, he'd be. And um, I'll just be quiet now so you can read this. Yeah, okay. Because what I'll do sometimes is just run the, the title straight into the poem. That's, 
Oh, if God perfect. were really omniscient, he'd be one, knocked stiff with boredom. And no amount of hallelujahs could remedy that. He'd have been unmoved by his earthquakes, underwhelmed by his forests, ho-hum about the business end of his sharks. He'd have known all about it already. He'd have just been a Xerox machine. Two, and he'd know if you're going to keep reading this. Actually, I should say, he'd know if you're going to keep listening and when you're going to die. And right now, know your final memory, that cold smell of snow on a night still years away. Though, of course, I'm imagining. Three, and that's the point. The next thing I think hasn't happened yet. And whether it's something amazing or just, holy shit, that chick's got a fabulous ass. It's nice to have surprises. Who are we to wish God any less? Four, or supposing I grant the premise. Five, then seeing all, he'd have had to see this too. The dullness of certainty. Wouldn't he rather wad omniscience like a memo and toss it into some black hole? Wouldn't he wizard up fireworks instead, set chemicals in dirt, ignite our minds and think, what now? Six, exploding wonder. Bright noises he can watch from the mezzanine. We here gathered with our moon children orbiting. We, the mysterious with blast-off emotions. We of the now and then unison wow prayer. For a moment drawn closer, more knowable. Seven, and sometimes, briefly, looking up. Mm, I love that one. <laughs> Thank you. You know, I don't really get a lot of requests for that, actually. Really? No, no, no. Because that seems to, I don't know, to, to posit that there might be another way uh, of doing, thinking, hearing, feeling, telling sometimes bothers people. Um, mm. At least I found that. Maybe in Utah, uh, there's, it could just be that that's the only poem in the book that has a swear word in it. <laughs> uh, no, you know, I, I have spent most of my life from before I was an adult being involved in um, uh, various um, political, environmental, and other issues that, you know, the mainstream inside-the-box viewpoint, which is so beneficial to those who are trying to express it to you and they want you to think that way and which is so comforting and easy for the people who then don't have to think about the issue you know that happens a lot and I think a lot of times people just want to have an answer because that means you can stop thinking about it and move on with your life and focus on other things no I know which is crazy um because I think that anybody you know any any god that can create all of everything is doing it for the same reason that anybody else creates anything, out of curiosity, a need to express, creativity, that kind of urge, questions. I mean, if you already know all the final answers, why would you go to the trouble? So well, Yeah, um, or even you know, if it wasn't trouble, why even go through the process? Well, yeah, I think that, you know, I, and that's what movie review gets at, too, uh, this idea that the creative act is uh, is a way to ask questions rather than, you know, say, here's my answer, shazam, I think that, uh, I mean, if we're fashioned in God's image uh, and we're curious, then wouldn't God be curious? And how could you be Mm. curious if you're omniscient? So that was the impulse there. But I also think that seems a limiting thing, to stick somebody in a mythic prison that just says, you have no thoughts anymore, having the answers all all in advance. It is very interesting how many people will pick up a small book and say, this defines what my God is capable of. I mean, I don't think humans should be controlling their God. Yeah, no, we can't possibly have any idea. But I do think that sometimes people are uncomfortable if you did something that they wouldn't have done their whole life in the company of people who are Mm like-minded. And I guess, well, I mean, part of the reason I write it is because I'm trying to do the opposite. And lots of times, especially with things like that, people don't want to hear that there might be the possibility of an opposite. Well, you know, yeah, in general, in general, um, it's really interesting watching people trying to figure out what they're willing to um, accept as possible. Uh, Well, when was it? Okay. Oh, goodness. It was about two years ago. Somehow I got in a really fabulous, incredible conversation with a brother-in-law who um, was raised Catholic. My husband's entire family um, is a Mexican immigrant family. 
And so a lot of them are recovering Catholics or they're still Catholics. And then this one brother has sort of returned to the church in a way. He's very family-focused, incredibly family-focused. His family is everything. And we had this conversation. I was walking around outside with my, my phone on a beautiful spring day. And that was the first time it really hit me that people are born or created or develop specific needs, and they don't all develop the same need. So my brother-in-law multiple times said, but don't you want to know? I mean, that sent, but, but don't, but don't you want to know over and over? He kept saying that. And I, cause we were talking about God and I'm like, you know, I've never wanted to know. I mean, how could I as a human ever understand something so huge? I will patiently wait. And when I die, if anything's going to happen, I'll discover it then. And I feel a hundred percent content with that. I mean, I really, really very, very happy. I feel very very relieved and joyful that I can't know that that's the way my brain works. Whereas for him, it was very clear. He wanted the rules. He wanted to know how it worked. He wanted to know what was going to happen. He had an innate desire to know, and I don't share that. I have a different desire. Yeah, I think I'm with you. I like questions. I like questions more than answers. I think that you, when you get an answer, you're done. That's it. Yeah. Um, I mean, what if the most incredible, you know, part of it all is people's curiosity, people's brains, their ability to work things out or imagine. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you just give the whole universe the answers to the test, then there's no reason for that brain. Right. So, you know, I, I like the questions, and I love the old stories that explain the origins of things, right? Mm-hmm. But not so much that I won't invent absolutely brand new origin stories myself. Mm-hmm. Right, and it, you know, I think that that's much more interesting. Where you know, you're going to get asked a question one day by a kid, uh, "How come a raccoon's tail has stripes?" I have, a, I have a story to answer that. Mm-hmm. Now, science does too, but I don't really care, and I'm not going to go to the trouble to remember that answer. It's more interesting to me to invent, mm-hmm. um, and I think that's what people like too. I mean, no way. We, we, you know, we were always drawn to stories. Nobody wanted to know the chemical composition of the flint rock that made the spark. Mm-hmm. They wanted something divine, and they needed a storyteller to do it. And I think we still do. I mean, maybe even more so now, especially yeah. given the sort of, I don't know, the lack of people using their own imagination in their downtime and instead click thumbing through telephones. Quick, I'm having an existential moment. Make sure I don't use it for myself. Oh, I better tweet that. Yeah. Right. You know, I just... I, I think people yeah. still need stories, and they just don't know that they're out there. And when they find them, I think that most people are very happy to have found them, and they want more. Well, and there are a few, of course, specific stories um, which we see coming out of Hollywood television shows. I mean, they're, and they're, they're all the same, really usually the same theme, repetitive, repetitive, repetitive themes, and it's, it's um, really interesting um, observing well, as a parent sort of the brainwashing, for example, of the male American mind. You just have to look at the Hollywood movies that are directed towards that audience, and you find out exactly what they want to program those young people to think about. Well, yeah, but it's also the reason people want to go to it is because it's comfortable. The same reason that we'll watch reruns of shows we know we already like, right, rather than something new, because we just want something comfortable. Hmm. Same way you're going to reach for potato chips instead of broccoli most of the time. But you know, I don't know. I mean, so I'm not saying that poets are giving us broccoli. I, I don't mean <laughs> that at all. But uh, I wasn't taking that. <laughs> no. But, you, you know, I, I, I like to make up stories. I think questions are more interesting. So you've got this, um, it's not your last section, your last, but you have near the end, um, new myths for a new century. Yes, exactly. And while we flip over there a little bit, it starts around page 100. One of the things that um, often ask my authors to do on my show is to, near the end, sort of answer the question of um, why do you believe that there are still reasons to hope and feel hopeful about the future. One of the things that got me writing my novel was the experience of having a lot of friends that are older than me. So most of my, my husband's almost 20 years older than me. And a lot of our friends are 10 to 15 years older than me. And so they all have kids coming home from college and getting married and whatnot. And a lot of the kids that are coming home from college, 
would sit there at the dinner table. We'd go to their house and the kids are visiting or whatever. And I would say, well, what? Okay, you guys are coming out of college. You know, I'm busy. I'm mired in the kids and the farm and all this. But you're coming out of the universities. You know what's going on with the world. All of the issues from, you know, global warming and population and everything going on. You know, what are you excited about? What what are you going to fix? What are you going to change? How, you know? And I was really shocked that a lot of the kids, instead of saying, oh, I'm inspired to do this or that, they would sort of roll their eyes and say, well, you know, at this point, it's a lost cause. I mean, there, you can't fix it or stop this, this train that we're on. I'm not even going to try. See, I don't know if I have that feeling because I, I, I work with university students, and right now this semester, even though the class is it's an honors class, Modern Legacies, and I've got it sort of built around well, its foundation is Plato the Republic and the idea of building an ideal state. Hmm. Um, but it's after, after that, we jump to uh, a compare-contrast of dystopian classics like Fahrenheit 451, Brave New World, 1984, right. uh, short stories you know, that are relevant from Vonnegut, etc., with are these things actually happening? And we look at contemporary events or contemporary cultural criticism, Roger and Me's film, for instance, uh, you know, sorry, Roger and Me as a film to go along with H.G. Wells' The Time Machine mm-hmm. uh, about the haves and the have-nots, right? And Eloi and Morlock, and that was a fable set in 1895 about Victorian London. It wasn't about 800,000 years in the future. Right. Uh, these students get to do uh, from a list of their own assumptions, good and bad, about now and the future. Create an ideal state based on the good ones, create dire warnings based on the bad ones, they're able to come up with ideal states. Sometimes hmm. they're a little odd or a little spooky to me, right? <laughs> right. I mean, one guy wanted a computer to decide everything because he oh, had a yeah. lot of faith in that. Another guy wanted basically um, some sort of model, a lot like summer camp. If I had gone to summer camp, you know, with canoe lessons and everything with family and family time and family lunch and family outing and family hike and that's his, okay? And then there was, for instance, mm-hmm. one uh, student, she, this woman, uh, wanted to try and solve, in a sort of laser-focused way, problems with health and the air here, which we have bad air in the wintertime. So to get rid of combustion uh-huh. engines and to make people eat, even though that's not what they want to, vegetables, fruit, no more sugar, and they have to walk everywhere, not only are they going to be more fit and healthy and therefore better off, and mm-hmm. it's cost-effective, right, because the health care costs go down this way, right. but there won't be the bad air, which also, when it's bad air, contributes to bad health and round and round. You know, mm-hmm. All of them get into this, and all of them are trying to invent. The trick is, I tell them, they have to not only create their ideal state, but then what are the ways that will be maintained? Because that's when it slides towards dystopia. And that, too, I think is revelatory because they realize, oh, wait a minute, maybe I shouldn't be tyrannically in charge of fixing everything mm-hmm. and everyone because I may have some fallibilities in my plan that I hadn't thought of. Mm-hmm. But it's fun to imagine. And I think that's an exercise in the opposite. Instead of a shrug, they're busy trying to do like Terrain is trying to do at their journal site, uh, you know, what would be ways to make the world better? an mm-hmm. ideal place. And I think writers probably are, and I, I get that this is the point of your show, trying mm-hmm. to make the world a better place, right? To envision, to imagine, to create through story a way that affects people, not just intellectually, but first emotionally, or the intellect yes. isn't really going to care. Yes. If they can invest it in storyline, if they can invest it in intention or, or, or character, well, then maybe they will. And it, the more times they're exposed to these kinds of things instead of slasher movies or some other empty, bankrupt thing, right. then the more they're going to be engaged, probably active, you know, at least a little more than they were before in, in, in the way they're living. I mean, nobody's going to be able to solve the issue for their whole community, not even a mayor, right? Right, like, right, right. Right now, I mean, Mayor Becker has made me angry because he promised me a trolley car, and we don't have a trolley car. Uh-oh. So, you know, I was was easy. I wanted the trolley that we were supposed to get. He didn't give me a trolley, and now this man has my anger, right? Mm -hmm. It would have been nice to have the trolley I was promised, that sort of – so people will still complain, but I don't think that we give up. And I think that – look, I was born in 68. There were major cities all over America on fire, and I'm not making that – rivers were on fire. Yeah. Presidents like Nixon had to put the fire out by creating the EPA. 
um, you know, it is not as bad as it used to be, clearly. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that in the future uh, students are going to know this unless they study history because it's not even in their, I don't know, it's not even in their imagination. And Uh, I would say rather than, I mean, I'm, how do I say this? I am very, okay. I love my son's history teacher. He's a great guy. And I love history. And I actually even like the AP World History book that my son is reading. I think it does a fairly good job of explaining things that I already know about. But in general, the way in which history has been, I mean, it's been so destroyed over the last 100 years by turning it into this dead items to memorize. And yet, really, it is stories. It's like forget history, learn the stories, learn human stories because we go to the we pay big bucks to go to the movie and watch stories and well how is it you cannot make history in a public school as enjoyable as that movie you totally could so why don't they you know what is going on with this i don't know it might be a structural deal if you've got Mm. 150 students packed in all day long the simplest thing is read the answers to the questions and memorize them, and uh, you know, at the end of the chapter, we'll take a quiz because it but would be a cool way to teach history, wouldn't it? Like you know, the moon landing. Hey, in order to appreciate what these engineers from NASA did just to get to the moon, let alone this recent thing on Mars, mm-hmm. let's try and design our own rocket here and some sort of integration with science or physics. But that kind of curriculum. Let's try to get the ping pong to land on the top of the yeah. school building. <laughs> that, no, that would be amazing, and some schools will do it. Right. But it is an awfully difficult task to be, I would think, a junior high, especially junior high, but also a high school teacher, yeah. where you just are crushed by the sheer numbers and 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 the and the lack of joy in being there in the first place from right. probably half the students. Yeah. I mean, my parents were school teachers, and uh, you know, Jen, my wife, is a school teacher. It is not an easy gig. And Mm-mm. the other thing too is nobody cares. They all will say they very much want this kind of inventive curriculum, integrated approach. Mm-hmm. But nobody cares if you've done that if they didn't show some sort of increase in an aptitude test. Right. That's but what, but of, what is it? A Matt Damon, his mother was a school teacher too. He's really working his as hard as he can to try to, you know, get, what is it? There's a great um, Facebook post I actually recently shared uh, where he's like, you know, if, if my future had been based upon my exams or, or whatever, I wouldn't have gotten where I got, you know, I got here because. No, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. I love that because it's the world of commercial celebrity and whatnot turned around and used subversively not to sell something like gum or minivans or, mm-hmm. but to sell the idea of a different approach to education. But the yeah. truth is that is a great story, mm-hmm. and I would like very much for that to happen. And at my own school, we're trying that. In the curriculum that I create, we're trying that. They call it engaged learning, and they don't just mean you go on field trips to, as a scientist, collect pond scum from the shores of Utah Lake and then bring it back to the lab, but mm-hmm. that even in the humanities, I mean, it's much more an integrated traditional liberal arts approach to that, but shh. You can't say traditional liberal arts in Utah without somebody misunderstanding that to mean you're brainwashing people to vote for the Democratic Party. Wait, wait, wait. Like Utah has a problem with brainwashing in general? No. (laughs) No, they they don't. They do that a lot. (laughs) I I do think that there's more hope. I really do. And I look at my 6-year-old and my 11-year-old, and they don't look at the world as a bleak, hopeless rock. I mean, there are parts on it that are, right, up in Canada – it's just, I mean, what they did with the, oh, the, the tar, tar sands. sands. Yeah. I, I've, yeah. Have you seen photos of that? It looks like somebody dunked the moon in kerosene and lit it on fire. I mean, it is yeah. an absolute horror show. And not only that, but what they're doing to the people. So um, yeah. I know some of these. So they take these young guys and they take them up there. And it's, it's sort of like you're completely cut off from the rest of the world. So they create like the company store and all that. And then um, the prostitutes come in, the drug dealers come in. And you've got these young kids who are sold on the idea of you're going to make so much bank because they Gold pay rush. them good money. You're you're going to make a ton of money. Well, it's great if you were in a healthy environment and two years later you walk out and you can pay for college, no problem, and, you know, have a down payment on a house or whatever, travel the world. 
but it gets sucked up by the prostitutes and the um, the drugs, and these kids come out four or five years later broken, no money to show for it, addicted to drugs, in a lot yeah, of ways no. sort of destroyed. It's, it's I, it all disaster. There's nothing exactly. good about it. I agree completely, except that I, yesterday, I mean just yesterday as I'm leaving the classroom, the other students for the next class are coming in, one is talking about Alaska, a place that I got to go to um, mm-hmm. for a theater festival. This was you know, 10, 11 years ago, but never, it was amazing. It was Valdez, mm-hmm. Prince William Sound. That had been ruined, remember, by the Exxon yeah. Valdez, but it wasn't ruined anymore. I mean, mm. maybe it was diminished, but it was still orcas and eagles, a humpback whale, salmon. Actually, you couldn't look in any direction without seeing them jump out of the water, right? Mm-hmm. Things will recover, right? Yeah. I, I love yeah. Robinson Jeffers, the poet. Well, Mount St. Helens. Yes, yeah. and it will. And Terrain has a great thing, terrain.org on Mount St. Helens. Things will come. People might not come back, but the world will, right? Oh, yeah. Well, the world is going to go away, too. And in some ways, this is what's so funny. Back, let's see, it was like 19, oh, gosh, I graduated in 1990, and I moved to Sacramento, California because my mother lived there. And she was friends with a couple who were nice, but they were extremely um, conservative uh, Republican types, especially around um, economics and environment issues. And at one point, I remember we were there for dinner, and he they were trying to save a specific type of fish, and they wanted to change how the rivers are being run because they can control the flow. And he's like, well, what? Are you telling me that that fish is more important than people? And I, I, I thought, no, 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 no. Environmentalists are not about trying to lock the world in the way it is right now and preserve it in a static state. Environmentalist is actually really a humanist because right now the world is great for humans. We're trying to keep the world great for humans, ironically. So it's, it's more like, no, this is our environment. And that fish feeds another fish that feeds another fish so you can go salmon fishing. And if you get rid of all the fish that the salmon end up eating at the top of the chain, well, then your salmon are gone. So Yeah. No, I, yeah, I, I think that almost one of the other things that's great about, for instance, this semester is that in the literature that we're reading and in the, in the news that we're discussing and their plans for an ideal state and their, and their dire warnings about the future and the ways things could go wrong if we stay on this trajectory, the students are mm-hmm. seeing the same thing I am, which is all of these things are far more interconnected and complicated than, you know, somebody's sneer or slur or one-sentence remark. Right. And that's the opposite of what we see on television, right? right? It is absolutely, it is long-form kind of thinking. It is tied to questions rather than answers. Mm-hmm. And in that way, you know, they may still be wrong. I might still be wrong, but at least it's not based entirely and exclusively and the end on fallacies, right? Mm-hmm. Or insults, right? Sound bites. So, yeah, yeah, but, you know, I think that that's the same thing about stories. Stories aren't usually doing that either, and if they were, people wouldn't like them, right? Right, 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 right. Yeah, no, exactly. It it is interesting. Um, yeah, like Facebook, um, you'll have people trying to discuss a complex subject on Facebook, and it'll deteriorate oftentimes if people are feeling limited to one and a half sentences that you know don't even have any punctuation or something. Right. And um, oftentimes, there's one particular issue that I am um, an advocate for. And I won't dive into it right now, but when I am discussing it on Facebook and these large groups on the island with, like, you know, thousands of members, I'll say, okay, I'm sorry, everybody, but this is my answer to the question so-and-so posed, and it's going to be long. If you read it, you'll know why it was long. And if you don't want to read it, that's fine. And the next thing you know, there's this huge thing with, like, you know, 11 paragraphs or something. But just recently at one point after that happened there was a group of people who like private messaged me and even said so publicly on facebook they're like thank you for taking the time because i did take the time to read it and it makes a lot of sense and you couldn't have said this in four sentences or whatever no it's hard it's hard haiku you can sometimes you know uh, right i'll give you an example yes this is from the book yes <clears throat> you just get 17 syllables with a haiku so this is at the beginning then under the uh news yeah, and yeah. haikus and this is just one in the section, but uh, and there's no title because they're just little things. But hate is a shovel, love is a river. Both dig, but one just digs holes. Now you can right. do you can do in in a short amount of space 
in you know in a poem, whether it's a sonnet, free verse, haiku. I like to make up other forms, like I said, fables, origin stories, myths, mm-hmm. lists, lost and found lists, all these kinds of things. You can do a lot in a small space, and you can mm-hmm. tell a story along the way. And the idea is never to be confusing, baffling, but always open and accessible. I think. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you've been asking for people's attention, and you gave them nothing right. except a headache, right? Well, what do you uh, think about flash fiction? Well, I, I write that, too. Right, I like but you didn't it. mention it in your listing of different things. No, but flash – okay, this is a different question. A lot of people have uh, – one time I was asked, for instance, by the, the editor, the managing editor at Weber, uh, the Contemporary West, which is a journal up in Ogden, did the, the title poem from this book, Story Problems, Mm-hmm. Uh, was that, did I think that was flash fiction or prose poetry? And I wrote back, which pays more? <laughs> right? And she said, that's funny because everybody just gets contributors' copies and there's no money in it. And I said, well, I, I tend to think of it as a, as a prose poem, but you could put it in the table of contents wherever you like. Right. People will get into, there's a journal called uh, Double Room where they don't differentiate, they just publish both without saying, this is prose poem, this is flash fiction, these mm-hmm. kind of hybrid texts. Right, and then they'll right. ask people for their definitions, and then those get very, very, uh, oh, I don't know, pedagogical, theoretical, jargon-laced, and dense. And I don't want to do that. I right. call them monologues. Right? I mean, almost always when I'm working in a prose poem, I'm working in first person, and I imagine it differently mm-hmm. uh, because I like plays, and I actually teach the study of drama, not to be an actor, to be a director, but plays as literature, ancient, contemporary, absurd, real, whatever, speaking directly to the listener the same way that old-timey poets would do, bard, right. the hall, yeah. you speak. And so when I'm doing prose poems, yes, I want them to sound more conversational, I think, but I will also, just so nobody gives me crap about it, mm-hmm. um, I will also absolutely nail down iambic pentameter lines within them, mm-hmm. right, as a sort of touchstone, as a, as a, you know, here it is, I'm still formal, right, don't, give right. me, don't give me any, uh, any, any guff. grief. Yeah. Right? So, so we are... Oh, we are running out of time, which totally is a bummer because I just could talk for another hour with you. Um, but Why don't I end with one of the old songs then about Washington, which technically isn't old because I invented them. Well, you know, yes, we can. And we could actually do that in addition if you'd like. You had in the email you sent me, you had reminded me that something happened, I believe, on Friday that may or may not be getting noticed by people. Um where President Obama came out and denounced um, a particular thing that's been going on, and that you have this poem oh, yeah. called no, the right. Perfe- yeah. Reparative you, Therapy. Yeah. Go for it. Put that oh, out there. Okay. Um, reparative Therapy, for people who do not know, is, is a, some people believe that you can actually cure somebody who is homosexual from being homosexual, as if it were an illness. Uh, mm-hmm. They can be repaired uh, they're broken, but this will fix them. When I first moved to Utah, I was surprised, and I had moved here from Louisiana, where when you saw on TV news a banner in big, red, scrolling, continuous letters, mm-hmm. blinking and italicized, it was for hurricane warnings. Mm-hmm. But one night on the news here, not long after I moved here, it was a success story touting the, the, the skills of the Evergreen Institute in reparative therapy. There was an interview with this man, and the whole time he was being interviewed, they were doing that sort of hurricane alert thing across the bottom of the screen, right. recovering homosexual, recovering homosexual, <gasps> recovering homosexual. Oh. And that just struck me as so crazy. I mean, wow. I didn't grow up in the most liberal of places, Puyallup. Spokane, I lived in Louisiana, and nobody's going to accuse them of being, I don't know, <laughs> Seattle. Um, but I, you know, and even if I, you know, even if everybody when I grew up was homophobic, and the last thing on the legislative agenda when I was a kid in Washington, or even a, you know, a young man in Washington, was the legalization of marijuana and marriage equality. I mean, mm-hmm. there's no way. That happened recently, not a long time ago. Right. That's another thing. I mean, when you live a long enough time, you see things progress in a different right. direction. Absolutely. Okay, so this was the poem, and it, it was triggered by this experience with this TV scrolling, recovering homosexual thing. Right. It's called The Professors Attempting to Disprove an Axiom. Yes. The professors attempting to disprove an axiom. You can change a zebra's stripes. 
He's seen notebooks full of entries, a hundred studies on microfiche, and a grant to finance his field test from the conundrum think tank in D.C. They're banking on him big time. Reparative zoology is in. The professor starts with measurements, calipers, an abacus, then experiments with tasty solutions of bleach, and the zebras cooperate. They listen to his lectures, watch slides of realist paintings, patiently sit through charts and graphs, tracking predatory ratios, and eat his enchanted apples three bags full. But nothing happens. He whips out his Bible and quotes from Leviticus, makes worried and threatening faces. No result. These zebras are stubborn, he concludes, boneheaded as mules. Don't they know my time is valuable? Don't they know what's best for them? Don't they know it makes our hearts ache to see them this way? <sighs> yep. But I yep. like that because it's a fable, right? It's an animal yeah. story, but you get to use them in, in, in ways to make a social kind of criticism. Sonnets, I'll do that too, because I think mm -hmm. that they make a nice, compact argument based on metaphor and image rather than haranguing. Right, um, right. So you use the narrative, and I think people can understand how ridiculous it would be to give magic apples and bleach treatment to a zebra. Right. But they might not uh, think that about other people. They might think, oh, no, bleach the gay out, you know, mm -hmm. get off their gay stripes. And the way to do it is, is you know, Evergreen's method, reparative therapy. Now, I will say I wrote that in 2000. It didn't appear until 2003 in a lit journal. Mm -hmm. All right, during the time I would still do it at readings, and people would afterwards say to me, was that about gay people? I mean, because that, don't you feel that's kind of risky? I mean, aren't you worried you could get in trouble for saying things like that? I thought, mm -hmm. why would I get in trouble? But the truth is, Sometimes writers are well ahead. I, I don't know that we're more ethical, but maybe we're, we're more vocal. It took President Obama until the year 2015, 15 years later, and now people are saying, oh, yeah, this is crap. This is terrible. This is bad. But 15 years ago, I think people understood, and maybe we're just afraid to say so, right? The same oh, yeah. with the emperor has no clothes. It took one kid who didn't know any better, me right. in this case, to stand there and say, that guy's naked. Because I think the, rev you know, the reparative therapy movement probably is scientifically naked. All right, mm -hmm. Maybe they're not, but I thought they were, and I said so. And I was told, you know, you better be quiet about those thoughts. Right. And any time, any time someone's saying you better be quiet, well, oh, gosh, okay. We'll, we'll, you had another poem. We'll close on the poem, but there's a, um, a quote, and I'm trying to remember who – okay, yeah, you might even know who said this. Um, I'm going to find this. Oh, gosh. Someone said, if you want to know um, who is in power, figure out who you're not allowed to criticize. Yeah, okay, that's good. Yeah, that's very astute. It's insightful. If you're not allowed to criticize, then that person's definitely in charge. And why are the people in charge so frequently the ones who have no sense of humor? <laughs> I don't I mean, know. they just don't. <laughs> I must be taken seriously, for I am very important, I say. I just, you know, if you can't laugh at yourself, maybe you shouldn't be allowed to, to stand on a, you know, for election on a ballot. Right, right, right. We'll That'd add be to an the interesting list of rule, you, you have it? to be a stand-up comedian You've as well be as self deprecating or, or you blah, can't blah. run for office. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, so you had one more poem that you yeah, were going to close with. I, yes. Well, okay, I'll tell you what. I wanted, to, on the one hand, tease 88 maps or brag about something I've accomplished recently, but I'd rather, just for unity's sake, and sure. with this poem called The Woman Who Gave Blackberries to the World. Yeah, that'd be, oh, that'd be nice. That'd be really nice. Okay, yeah. shoot, The Lady with the Blackberries. Okay. I yeah, love that one. The Woman Who Gave Blackberries to the World. So it's where do blackberries come from, Dad? They come from this. The Woman Who Gave Blackberries to the World. In the old songs about Washington, something strange appeared in a widow's yard. At first, nobody noticed, or they pretended not to see. Even ants in their disciplined lines marched right around. It rose from the ground above some loneliness she'd planted, tall enough already to cast shadows, snag fog. And in the old songs, there was fog every morning that year. By noon, it burned away, but the memory felt cold. 
and knowing more fog was coming made the days seem dark. Besides, the strange plant had spread, had overgrown her fence, cast vines and thorns like fishnets, so in the old songs, they decided to ask her to leave. But just then, children saw the blackberries and tasted them and ate and couldn't stop no matter how scratched they got, and it was good. And people came carrying baskets, telling stories. And the woman was no longer all alone. Aww. Makes me not want to go home and kill my blackberries. <laughs> no, you shouldn't do that. They'll just grow back anyway. Thank you. This is a reminder for everyone um, here um, listening to Prose Poetry and Purpose that there is beauty in the end behind all those little scratchy thorns. And um, yes. Deliciousness. Oh, yeah. Blackberries are awesome. Oh, okay. So thank you so much, Rob. This, uh, um, for those of you just joining us, yes, um, this is Marge Twisdale, producer and host of Prose, Poetry, and Purpose. I have been speaking with Rob Carney, a fabulous poet and instructor at a university in Utah and just wonderful all-around great, awesome guy who used to live here in Washington. And this has been a fabulous show. If you've missed it and you're just tuning in, go to www.voiceofvashon.org. Go to the on-demand section and take a listen. This is a great show. Rob, thank you so much. Well, thank you for asking to do it. Yeah. And thank you for opening my eyes to poetry in the um, spoken form. <laughs> Glad to help. Yeah.